it's very tempting, you know, if you're a contrary investor and value investor and whatnot, to think, well, maybe the thing to do is go and look at Intel, okay, it's them, but maybe they can somehow. Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I think on the energy part of this, we're going to talk about natural gas today with one comment on oil, and that is that Saudi Arabia did not decide to express their displeasure at not being able to get through that OPEC meeting a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, by threatening to open the spigots the way they did in February, just ahead of the lockdowns. And that's good. And uh, I knock on wood as I say it. The dispute is with the uh, United Arab Emirates, who have spent a lot of money increasing their production capacity and they wanted that recognized if the agreement was extended beyond April. And I, under, I understand, I haven't seen the details, but I understand some kind of settlement has been made and now we're, we'll be back on track. All that is good. Um, we can talk about natural gas and uh, natural gas on a worldwide basis is... LNG. And I'm not saying there isn't a lot of onshore gas. I mean, the largest gas producer in the world is Gazprom. And they export some LNG, but a lot of their gas comes to Europe, is used in Russia and comes to Europe in pipelines. But they have to price their gas against uh, ocean-borne LNG. And LNG has been very volatile. In July of 2020, it was in the $354 range. And there are two pricing points for LNG. One is Western Europe, and the other is what Platt's called JKM, which is a quote for cargoes delivered into Japan, Korea, and China. And both those numbers were under $4 in July of last year. There's no question that it probably related to the fact that oil prices were very low then. However, it got to $30 in January. I mean, think of it. It went from $4 for a current cargo in July to $30. Now, granted, in the places where the hubs, the pricing hubs for LNG, Europe, you know, is cold in the winter, and Korea, China is cold in the winter. So there definitely is some seasonal influence. As $30 was the price for 30 or 45 days, and then it headed down, I frankly thought, and I think most market participants or people following it thought that it would go down quite a lot, uh, maybe not all the way to $4, but maybe 6 or $7. It did, in April, get down, you know, say under $10, but then it it, it, it strengthened, and right now it's sitting at $13 in Europe and maybe $14 in Japan, Korea, and China. Well, that's remarkable. 
Um, LNG, traditionally, when, when uh, Gutter, which is the largest producer, would uh, agree to sell uh, LNG cargoes to, uh, say, Kogas, which is the purchaser for all LNG used in Korea, uh, they would base it on the price of crude. And basically, it would come out about 15% of the price of crude. So if crude were $60, 15% would be $9. The reason that we have these quotes, and, and most LNG, maybe 70, 80% of LNG moves on these price indices uh, against crude. Um, uh, maybe 30, 20, 30% moves on a spot basis. And one of the things that makes a spot basis so volatile, in other words, $4 in, in uh, July of 2020 and $30 in January of 2021 is that it's very hard to store as compared to oil or, 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 uh, other oil products. Uh, LNG tanks are expensive and there's not that much of them. It's also in, in oil, you store oil on the water, buy a big tanker and you just slow steam it or you tie it up somewhere. Can't do that with LNG ships. Uh, a $50 million secondhand oil tanker will hold, the LCC will hold 2 million barrels, uh, which is the BTU equivalency of, you know, uh, a heck of a lot of gas. Uh, uh, the, uh, a $50 million LNG ship holds three Bs. Uh, uh, three Bs divided by six, that's, that's you know, 400,000 barrels. So, you really can't store it on ships. You can't store it on land. So if Kogas has committed to buy cargoes that it can't use, it offers them into the spot market. Uh, if, if Kogas or other users are short, they buy in the spot market. So all the volatility goes into the spot market. Uh, in terms of its impact on U.S. gas, uh, U.S. produces about 90 bees a day. And our export LNG capacity is around 11 billion bees a day. Well, when you go back to July of 2020, it got as low as like five bees. So we were like less than half of capacity because every LNG cargo you picked up, even though the gas price was low, say $2, it costs you another buck and a half to, uh, to uh, liquefy it. And then it costs like a dollar to $2 to transport it. So no one was much interested in coming in, even though they're contractually required in coming in and picking up cargoes. Now with LNG at thirteen dollars, you know we're absolutely at capacity, and uh, uh, and and you know it's say three fifty. I mean the U.S. natural gas prices improved considerably. I mean it's now trading at you know on an annualized basis in in the three and a half dollar range. Uh, and that's after 2020 being the lowest gas prices in two decades. So it's been quite a significant turnaround. Uh, the, the incremental demand for natural gas is LNG. Uh, uh, power demand for natural gas had been a future, you know, a, an increase in demand. But now, as you have more wind, more solar, more renewables, uh, you know, that, that, 
incremental demand for natural gas is probably not there. Space heating, you know, heating our homes and whatnot is pretty flat. Industrial use is pretty flat. Uh, exports to Mexico have gone from three or four Bs up to uh, six or seven. So that's been good. But uh, the future uh, prospect for natural gas pricing in the United States depends on that 11 Bs a day being filled. And there are various projects coming on that will probably increase that 11B capacity to 15 or so. And that's very important for the future of natural gas. Is the price of natural gas at $3.50 sustainable? Don't know. That that will depend on the LNG market set keeping in pretty good shape. It will also depend on capital discipline in 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 amongst U.S. suppliers. If you think about public natural gas companies, other than Vine, recently public, the only public natural gas companies that anyone pays any attention to are the Marcellus companies, EQT, which is the largest, Antero, Range, uh, CNG, Southwestern, uh, Cabot, which is merging with Simrex. All those companies are in the, biz- are in the process of reducing their capex and paying down debt. Cabot, the only dividend payer, I think Range pays a small dividend. I would expect as time goes on, they'd all start to pay a dividend and start to try to act like Cabot or Pioneer, the oil companies, Pioneer or EOG or Diamondback. And so they've all rallied a lot, but in anticipation of this improved gas prices. And I would say the rally at this point is probably, you know, pretty well established. Uh, I'm not saying they're as cheap as they used to be, but you know they're not terribly expensive either. Um, the um, uh, uh, when um, when uh, LNG pricing goes down, how much can it go down without affecting uh, uh, U.S. natural gas pricing? Well, if we do that math again, three and a half dollars plus a buck and a half to liquefy plus bucks to Europe and two bucks to uh, Japan, you know, you, 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 you know, you can have a pretty healthy LNG demand in the U.S. at, you know, $9 LNG, $10 LNG, $8 LNG. You just don't want to have it go back down to four. Um, the, will the fact that international oil prices are in the 70s help maintain a price of at least eight or nine? Yeah, sure, it'll help. Um, uh, by the way, that 15% ratio, when COGAS goes to renew contracts with Gutter, that's going to be more like 10% or 11%. So think of it that way. If you're a large LNG exporter and you're renewing these oil-based contracts, uh, and when oil is $60, rather than paying $9, you're going to pay $6 or 6 and a half or something. So... Um, is this positive for the U.S. gas market? Yes. Is uh, amongst those Marcellus producers, is there still some money to be made? Probably. Uh, what's going to be required? It's just like EOG and Pioneer and Diamondback. The oil companies uh, do not do not spend more than two thirds of your cash flow and have unit you know, production increase. That is very difficult to do. Anyone who does it is going to get a premium valuation and. Uh, you know that 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 is the answer for uh, for both oil upstream companies in the U.S. and and gas upstream companies. Now, 
all these companies are doing is trying to compete, you know, with the very best performers in the stock market, cash flow performers in the stock market, which are the tech companies. And um, the uh, in talking with Mike briefly before, we made an interesting distinction, and this will lead into Mike's discussion of the chip business. But Mike made an interesting point. He said, well, gee, an LNG train, how quickly does that pay out? Even with these kinds of LNG prices, I don't think it's going to pay out. I mean, it, it's, it's going to be beyond 10 years. Mike made, and, and it's billions and billions of dollars. I mean, huge capital expenses. Very similar to the huge capital that goes into a, a, a you know Taiwan Semiconductor or Intel or anyone building a new fat facility. And Mike said that he thought, based on current conditions in the uh, chip business, that Taiwan Semiconductor, you know, I think their, their capital program this year is $30 billion or something, that a new fab facility might have a payout in four or five years. So if you want to compare uh, energy against chips, that's a good lead-in to turn it over to Mike on uh, on uh, the economics, the feasibility of uh, of building uh, building yeah of Taiwan Semiconductor or Intel or anyone else building new fabrication facility. But that over to Bike. This past year has been a really interesting year when it comes to semiconductors because some of the old older fabs have all of a sudden become more profitable than they've ever been. That being said, in a normal situation it's the cutting at the leading edge fabs that are making the most money and like Hunt said they need to pay back in a relatively short period of time because if, if they don't there'll be new technology that that, that, that reduces the demand for that those larger processes within semiconductors there's been a number of interesting developments in the last week or so i think eight or nine weeks ago we talked about all the different kind of the decoupling where Basically, China's standing up uh, their version of Taiwan Semiconductor, their version of the chip designers, et cetera. Um, and interestingly, uh, one of those, which is, uh, you guys have heard about this from before, SMIC, which is which was built to be a, a replica of Taiwan Semiconductor, um, their external bondholders are pushing for a restructuring. And that comes, I guess it's now been about six months later since uh, six months after uh, firing their existing CEO and bringing in a Taiwan semiconductor executive. So uh, all that is to say, it's not just the money. It's having the skills in order that are capable of getting these things up and running. So when we think about what's happening with Taiwan Semiconductor in Arizona, their $12 billion five millimeter factory that they've just broken ground on, the question is, is that going to be a profitable endeavor for them? Is it only going to be profitable because they'll be building stuff for the U.S. government, so they'll be able to get a premium? Or is this a path to long-term developing not only the, the, the capital investment but also the human capital investment in order to make uh, leading-edge semiconductor manufacturing viable in the U.S. Yeah, we've all read and heard, maybe even experienced the extent we had to try to go get a new car or, or find a used car. The cars are really short, and the reason cars are short is the car manufacturers, I guess, 
in the middle of last year uh, cut way back on their purchases of chips and building inventory of chips, and now are way behind. And uh, uh, if you're any of these companies, Samsung or Taiwan Semiconductor or Intel, uh, making chips for the automobile industry is not necessarily uh, anywhere, well, it's not anywhere near as attractive as doing high-end chips for NVIDIA, for, uh, for uh, AMD. And it's a much lower margin, much, uh, much kind of more difficult uh, 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 consumer of your, of your product to deal with car companies. Uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, Mike would say, uh, you know, I mean, his, his particular investment interest is Taiwan Semiconductor, but the, 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 the reputation in, in the chip business of having a lot of cyclicality has to do, I think, more with, uh, you know, those kind of commodity chips and high end, uh, you know, processors and, and, uh, 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 that, uh, uh, NVIDIA uh, uh, designs or ARM designs, uh, potential ac- merger partner acquisition uh, for uh, NVIDIA or AMD. And it's very tempting, you know, if you're a contrary investor and value investor and whatnot, to think, well, maybe the thing to do is go and look at Intel. Okay, missteps, but maybe they can somehow recover. And, uh, with that, I'll turn it back to Mike because I think Mike's view is the chance of Intel, despite their all their history, historic achievement, uh, uh, recovering and becoming as uh, as able to manage the high-end chips as Taiwan Semiconductors is between slim and none. I've probably overstated it, but turn it back to Mike. Yeah, you may not have overstated it. I mean, there's we're. Okay, back to the where you want to be in the market, the leading edge processes. The reason that I think that we're in a semiconductor super cycle, if you will, and this this applies to the fabs like Taiwan Semiconductor, but also with the manufacturing companies, the equipment manufacturing companies, is because the new uh, the latest generation of chips. We've we've pushed chip technology in the last couple of years farther and faster than we have in the last, in the prior decade or two. Um, And what I mean by that is really just what is capable with these chips is, um, is, is creating new applications. So uh, obviously what NVIDIA is doing with artificial intelligence and their GPUs is, is, is a big part of that. Um, And we're just going to see more of it. And uh, we spoke about this a couple weeks ago about why ARM makes a lot of sense for NVIDIA because they'll be pushing a lot of that same technology for that they're building into their GPUs for artificial intelligence applications that will go um, um, into consumer devices and other places on the edge. So that brings us back to Intel, who um, frankly slipped behind when it came to process technology. They've done some interesting stuff as far as packaging goes, but one, unless they're able to kind of leapfrog five and three nanometer and jump to two um, with potentially a completely different platform, um, they could really be left in the dust. And then the second thing is they've announced that they're going to build all these new 
these new fabs. They've got a $20 billion one in Arizona that they're, they're kicking off. They've got another one in Europe that they're, I believe, seeking funding for. It's hard to see that going well, tying this back to what I said in the very beginning about Chinese SIMC trying to stand up their version of Taiwan Semiconductor. If Intel thinks they're going to be able to just turn the switch and all of a sudden become a contract fab, I, I think they've got another thing coming. Um, I believe that business is harder to run than most people appreciate, and uh, which is why I think Taiwan Semiconductor's view of building this fab in Arizona is probably long-term if it goes well, if they're able to develop the talent, if they're able to successfully make a return on their investment there, they'll continue to invest and we will likely get more leading edge stuff here in the U S but in order for it to be competitive with Taiwan, it's going to need to be uh, highly automated. So anyways, all, all that is to say is that I think it's an uphill slog for Intel um, and it's not attractive enough from a value uh, investment perspective to take a gamble that uh, that it would be um, be able to accomplish those those feats. Mostly, what I know is how much I don't know about this kind of stuff. But in thinking about where Intel got in trouble, or where someone who gets left behind gets in trouble, you 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 build more sophisticated. Uh, chips, but the problem is, in terms of being successful commercially, you've got to have an error rate of, you know, rather low. I mean, probably way under five percent. And if you can't get to that error rate, and of course, all these, all these things are tested before they're shipped. The last thing you want to do is send them out and then have them have them not work or fail. Uh, and uh, so it's, uh, you know. Enormously challenging to be able to make these make these uh, small pieces of equipment, and uh, and um, I think it's it's interesting, and I can't think of a parallel in energy. But uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, when it was started, was you know just a kind of a an effort to make something worthwhile in in Taiwan. And uh, uh, the people who started it, uh, especially the founder, you know, had they, they might have been a Chinese descent or Taiwanese descent, but all their training and their professional career had been in the U.S. And uh, they probably thought when they started that um, even coming close to uh, to Competing with Intel was just not in the cards, and Intel, um, you know, designed its own chips. I mean, you could, it, you know, the various uh, uh, articles that have been and discussions on why Intel lost its position uh, probably has something to do with disputes between the people that designed the chips and the people who. Who make them the fabs? Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, as it turns out, I guess has the advantage of not designing their own chips, only dealing with their customers like Nvidia and 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 it, you know, in terms of 
ignominy, uh, you know, Intel on their on their newly designed processors may actually have them built by Taiwan Semiconductor or Samsung because they can't they can't get their fabs in a position where they can make them and uh, and have a big commercial with uh, you know very low percentage of uh, of, of failed failed uh, of chips coming off the line that you know have to be thrown out. Now, I've oversimplified all that. So before we finish today, we've got about five more minutes. We'll have Mike straighten us out on, on uh, a more uh, a more experienced uh, uh, description of uh, how how things go in the chip business. I mean, at a high level, that you're you're 100 in line. I think that's. Uh, it's a difficult industry. It requires a lot of scale in order to be effective, especially at these leading edges. You talk about, let's circle back to where Intel kind of fell off a little bit. Um, They pursued a different process technology in order to go smaller. Um, Again, simplifying somewhat, they used more etching and and not what is known as... um, uh, EUV lithography, which is what ASML, uh, the, another company that we've spoken up about before, um, uses, and that's that, that's the technology. And these machines are a fortune. Um, I, I think the they're probably the single uh, largest expense item on on building out one of these factories. That being said, they've been highly effective. Um, they're the the initial use case for EUV was that it was going to be cheaper. Um, what's it's turned out, as Hunt pointed out, is that it's not only cheaper, but it produces far less errors than um, than alternative processes. So that's where the industry is consolidating. That's why ASML's done so well, um, both as an investment, but um, but also as a technology developer. So it, you know. The fabs are just, I guess all this is to say the fabs are just one piece of the puzzle. It's the technology that goes into the fabs. It's their relationships with the, the chip designers. Back to NVIDIA. I mean, NVIDIA works with Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung as they're designing chips in order to, in a collaborative way, in a, uh, and, and in a way, that's good for NVIDIA because they can have multiple options. They can go, hey, look, this is what we're trying to do. And they may come back and say, hey, you can tweak this that way. Or we can do this cheaper if you do this. Where at Intel, you're kind of stuck inside the same system. And if, you're, if your fab says you can't do it, you have to do it this way. That's all you're going to be able to get. So, again, Intel is in the middle of a, of a supposed turnaround in this case, I'm I'm definitely skeptical of Intel's ability to turn the company around at this point. Um, definitely worth watching. I mean, it's a it's a it's been uh, a very incredible company over the course of its life. I certainly hope that it does turn around. I just don't think they're there yet, or at least there's not enough info for me to get comfortable with it at this point. Yeah, just to just to close. Um, um, Interest rates and inflation uh, in two minutes. The ten-year Treasury was 175 in February, and it worked its way all the way down to 130 just recently. 
And the explanations for that happening basically support this idea that the inflation, which was month over month, 5% of a CPI in June, will be transitory. The other explanation for that decline in the 10-year rate is that economic activity may flatten out in 22. In other words, we have the snapback from last year and we'll get to the fall or into the first quarter next year and the government spending to support enhanced unemployment benefits and whatnot to try to help the the 10 million people or so just out of jobs and continue to be out of jobs because of the because of COVID collapse and uh, and so you won't have the fiscal stimulus and then sooner or later the uh, Federal Reserve I think probably before the fall is out will modify their bond buying program they buy forty billion dollars of mortgage bonds now and eighty billion dollars of of U.S. government securities kind of in effect monetizing the debt. I think it's very likely sometime in the next few months they drop at $40 billion of, of, uh, of mortgage bonds. After all, the house market is incredibly uh, is up in a significant way. Uh, the, the home business, uh, value of homes and whatnot, and housing activity. And so it's hard to see that the mortgage market needs that support. And uh, so with... Uh, you know, the, the monetary, you know, QE quality, you know, uh, uh, phasing down and the federal deficit finally coming down, uh, the government spending less money. And of course, what's going on now is, uh, I mean, the different, uh, political factions, uh, you know, in both parties. I mean, the people near the center and then the Democratic Party, the people up on the progressive and then the, you know, the more conservative side of the Republican Party, they're all fastened in on who's going to pick up seats in November 22. I mean, the way they're behaving, you'd think the, uh, the election was just, you know, 60 or 90 days away. Uh, and, uh, so, um, how this all works out in terms of capital markets and especially stock market values. I mean, you can say we did all this overspending and we monetized debt. We didn't create that much uh, consumer price inflation. However, there's no question that the overall stock market level uh, definitely benefited from low interest rates. So seeing high interest rates wouldn't necessarily be good for the, you know, the stocks we all own. Uh, And, uh, I think I think that as each week goes by, as each month goes by, here it will become a little clearer uh, how to uh, how to how to uh, uh, anticipate this. Uh, I think in terms of oil pricing, gas pricing, you know the uh, the uh, the cash flow from companies that have free cash flow, like the Googles and Amazons and the videos and whatnot. I think that's all pretty secure. But the valuation of that cash flow is, you know, what may be at risk. So, uh, as I say, next week, uh, having led oil last week and gas this week, next week we'll uh, lead with interest rates. And with that, everyone stay healthy, and uh, and uh, we'll talk next Wednesday. Take care. 
for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.